Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and as per usual, well, when he's not holidaying and looking after himself in a very selfish kind of way, Paul Rickard. Paul Rickard has joined us in the program. Thank you for the fabulous introduction, Peter. Now, oh, an honest introduction. Uh, honest introduction. Okay, now tell me, uh, we had Malcolm Turnbull in his book last week. Uh, no, we didn't. We wanted to. We couldn't get him. <laughs> Where were you? We wanted to get Malcolm. We, we've been well, hunting him. If anyone knows where Malcolm uh, is, tell well, him Peter Switzer wants to interview him. Maybe he book. thinks you're too conservative. Maybe, maybe. Appearing on Sky News and, of course, uh, now regular with Alan Jones every morning at uh, just before 8 o'clock. Well, if Jonesy likes an objective commentator, why not? And uh, uh, is that rubbing off on you? Are you a, now a, are you a conservative with a capital C? I've always C been or, a very. Or a liberal with a little C. I've always been a very well balanced commentator. I'm going to chip on both shoulders rather than just one. Paul. Well, the, the reason for saying that, Peter, is, uh, of course, uh, we thought it was time for. Switzer to take a little bit of a walk down the, the left, left side. side. That's right. And it, 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 it actually happened by accident, didn't it? We, one of our um, staff members told us about this book that she was actually studying at universities. A lot of universities are reading this book, Four Futures, Life After Capitalism, by a, a sociology academic by the name of Peter Fraze. And we thought, well, yeah, why not? Why don't we give it a go? Paul thought it was going to be boring because well, he's in New York, Peter, and of course we got the chance to talk about the uh, the virus. But I think mm. he's got some, a really interesting take. But yeah, uh, very interesting. Of course, it's, what is interesting, of course, we've got quite a, a young team and mm. um, a well balanced young well balanced young team, and they're having to deal with two old and very conservative people. Yeah. you know, like yeah. you and I, and yeah. and they've of course got some slightly more progressive ideas. Peter, <laughs> yes, I think. that's right. And hence we end up with something like this. You yeah. know, four, but, four futures, but, life after capitalism. This is an investment uh, program. That's right. Well, but the reality <laughs> is he does talk about the implications of robotics and artificial mm. intelligence, and they all do, will have stock market and economic implications. But we should also make the point here. A lot of people don't know this about pork um, um, Ricard, he may well have become a banker and he may well have become a very conservative right-wing type person. But he once beat Anthony Albanese for the head of the Labor Party in well, the, not quite. the, the Sydney University. The Sydney, you Sydney University Students' Representative Council, uh, presidential election, uh, me versus Albo. Wait, were you representing Labor or just representing yourself? I was sort of representing more the right wing of Labor and oh. he was a little bit... Quite a lot further to the left. left. Okay. <laughs> it's come back a but, long way since. But the since. bottom is that yeah, you bottom were a line, Labor man in, the, in good, your younger days. Good beat evil. Was that, yeah. was that a bit harsh? No. <laughs> I triumphed. He came a happy second. Yeah. yeah. It's unbelievable that, that he, he went on to become yeah. potentially. And look what <laughs> didn't happen to me. Yeah, anyhow, that's, a, that's another. That's a, that's a, by the but, way. But, but that's one of the reasons we need to go back to our left yeah, yeah we're all and, I, and I used right? to be a university academic, you and did. I, was, I was much more left than I am nowadays. And of course, there is the old saying that you know, if you don't vote Labor and you're under the age of forty, you haven't got a heart. If you're still voting for Labor after the age of forty, you haven't got a brain. A but that's very little. unfair. <laughs> I, I do not agree with. But some idiots do say those things. <laughs> all right. So our first guest is Peter Fraze. He's the author of. Four Futures, Life After Capitalism. Then we'll be talking to a lady by the name of Geraldine Kennett. Uh, the, um, uh, the MBA program at La Trobe University has put a, an online MBA course for all those people locked up at home, just bored senseless with being at home. There's an opportunity to grow your leadership skills yeah, it's, it's for a, free. It's a, it's a free program yeah. uh, and uh, put out together by the, the faculty. So higher quality content, and uh, you can just sign up. In fact, people across the world sign up to this program. Yeah, and, and you can get accreditation, she thinks, going forward in other academic pursuits that you might do. We're also going to be talking to Peter Malone, who's the CEO of Skin Elements, which was a company that recently listed on the stock market. And Skin Elements is a, 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 a business that really has the potential for lots of um, 
positive things when it comes to even coronavirus as well. It's got implication for coronavirus. And then we're also talking to... Uh, as long as it's not into... Um, not disinfectant, what was... Uh, uh, hand sanitizer. No, 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 no. Uh, with Donald and... Uh, uh, oh yes, the chlorine the, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, not, not, well, not the, just the treatment, one. but 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 uh, you know, oh, injecting the disinfectant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not disinfectant. Am I right? Um, disinfectant. It was yeah. disinfectant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's now but Donald was joking about. He was that. being sarcastic, he, Peter. Just as I'm being that. very sarcastic yeah. right now. He didn't look yeah. like he was joking, but he was sarcastic. And that's the that's the quality of joking. If you can joke and people don't get it. That's very good joking. That's good joking. <laughs> I, I, I interrupted and we did digress. Yeah, and yeah. our last guest is a friend of mine, Louise Kay, who's locked up in London. Like, what a place to get locked up. You would have thought London is the greatest place in the world to get locked up in. No, and, it's and, bad. And if you compare how the UK's gone versus Australia, there is no comparison in the no. way they've, 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 they've really mishandled yeah. this crisis, I think. I think we get the bronze medal for fighting the coronavirus. I think Hong Kong wins, followed by New Zealand, believe it or not. But we have a lower rate per 100,000 people. I think the New yeah. Zealanders like to think they're winning. we got it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so too. Uh, we're, but, we're giving they it they to do better, like in rugby. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll give it to Keith. But the bottom line is we're doing well, and it's been great for um, ScoMo's popularity. Like, let's say, he was as popular as Acne after the bushfires, but now he's like the, but do you know uh, who the beloved leader. Who the real winner is, according to the Australia, that same poll, was mm. the West Australian Premier. His popularity rating Mark, is, a, uh, is about 90%. Yeah, Mark McGowan. Uh, Mark McGowan, yeah. yeah. He's a bit of a right ALP. He's, he's, he's very much in the Paul Keating type school of yeah. uh, really perhaps a bit like a Malcolm Turnbull, right? He went to the Liberal Party and probably should have gone to the Labor Party. This guy's gone to the Labor Party, maybe okay. should have been a Liberal. But anyhow, okay. I, I, I do digress for you our do, West, uh, West Australian colleagues. This right? is a very digressing program because yeah. we've digressed to the left, if such a word exists. Well, yeah, because usually we aren't. In the left, and if we like, take a, a tangential move to the left, what's that song from Rocky Horror? It's a little step, a step, step to the left, or skip to the left. Skip uh, to the step or skip. Jump, step, jump, 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 step jump. to the left. No, it's anyway. a jump to the left. Isn't Look, it? we are yes. ill qualified <laughs> to even talk about this. Let's if we get... had a decent producer, he yeah. would correct us on the spot, wouldn't yeah. he? Right? He's he, trying he'd to. tell us and say, well, Peter, you got this wrong yeah, again. But right? our producer doesn't interfere. He's there, yeah. he's giving hand signals. Yeah. He's a very gracious young man. Okay, let's kick off with the program with our uh, interview with Peter Frace, author of Four Futures Life After Capitalism. Peter, thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Peter, who is Peter Fries? Uh, well, I uh, am a writer and researcher, freelance now. I did uh, graduate work in sociology at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and I'm a member of the editorial board of Jacobin Magazine, which is a socialist left-wing magazine uh, in the United States. Okay, and so how have you been so well accepted that they're now – yeah, using your book on academic programs, even in a country like Australia? Well, I think it kind of bridged some different audiences. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily make tremendous claims for the novelty of everything in my book. I think a lot of it is collecting and sort of rearranging ideas uh, and evidence that had been out there. But by taking both a serious social scientific approach rooted in theory and empirical research but also a pop cultural approach of using science fiction and speculative fiction to draw on in framing my arguments. I think it sort of left out of the normal, both academic and political world, and maybe got the attention of people who weren't always going to be reading this kind of material. And that made it appealing also, I think, for some people who are teaching concepts around labor and technology and political struggles over those things. Uh, and we're looking for something that's a little shorter and a little more accessible uh, on the topic. Now, the book is called Four Futures, Life After Capitalism. Peter, can you b briefly explain the premise of the book? Sure. Well, the, the starting premise of the book was to consider something that people have been anxious about for hundreds of years in capitalist societies, and particularly in recent years, which is automation and technology and the effect that that's going to have on the future of work. And in recent times, of course, this is an anxiety along the lines of our robots going to take all our jobs? Or conversely, can we have a kind of fully automated society where we could all have much more leisure and a higher standard of living? And 
I was sort of taking that as a starting point and starting with this sort of science fictional premise of what if we take trends that are already existing in the world with regards to automation and technology and take them to the extreme where we can automate away almost all sort of necessary labor. Uh, what would happen then? And then the four futures of the title of the book comes out of this sort of two-by-two two simplified grid of four scenarios, you might call them, that I sketch out for this possible highly automated future uh, that's through two other lenses that I think are most important for understanding what might happen or what is already happening. Uh, one of them is the political dimension. Uh, one problem with a lot of futurism and a lot of thinking about technology is that it tends to assume a kind of technological determinism that if something can happen or is possible, then it will come to pass. And the politics of a world you know, of extremely unequal wealth and power are such that some futures are opened and some are foreclosed depending on the outcome of political struggles. So that's kind of one axis of variation. And then the other is the question of climate and ecology more, general, more generally, which is to say, whatever our technologies can do, however productive our robots are, there are other constraints having to do with our environment, resource scarcity, dealing with the effects of pollution, dealing, of course, with the warming climate and the effect that has on the ability to have high standards of living and a habitable planet for everyone. And so that sort of gives you this two-by-two grid, which Mm -hmm. sociologists are quite fond of, where you can get the sort of more ecologically abundant or more constrained world, and you can have a more politically and class-wise hierarchical uh, or a more egalitarian world. And through the interaction of those two things, we see different aspects of how the contest over work and technology might play out. All right, so... Peter, you've obviously got effectively four crystal balls. Which one do you think is going to tell the true story going forward? Well, one of the lines I use in the book is a well-known line from the speculative fiction author William Gibson, uh, who wrote Neuromancer, among other novels, who says, uh, is supposed to have said, the future is already here. It's just unequally distributed. And part of what this book was trying to dig out is not so much that one or another future will come to pass or that one is more likely than the other, but that in the present moment, the time when I wrote the book a few years ago and in a different way, I think even today, you can see elements of all four of these possible futures uh, before us. And so that the purpose of the book was in some ways just to concentrate those things into these thought experiment futures. Um, And so at the moment, certainly there are all kinds of obvious ways in which we still live in a world of inequality and hierarchy, and we have climate change is has become more of an obvious problem with each passing day, and now we have the pandemic of COVID-19 as sort of something that can be regarded as in some ways related to the broader issue of humans' relationship with the Earth and the climate, and it's, it's certainly another kind of material constraint on us. So you could say that the one of the more dystopian a- aspects of the book uh, is the one that seems foremost in mind right now, which is that we end up in a world where we still have a small, super-rich elite and also a lot of material scarcity in terms of, you know, the world that we live in. Um, but I, I would say that uh, the, all those futures are all already here, and we can see even within the context of the pandemic how, uh, you know, how, how that's shaking out. So let's talk about the... Uh pandemic peter because when you you wrote the book a couple of years ago so well before i guess any of us had sort of thought we might be living through something like uh covid19 has that uh do you think if you rewrote the book now you'd come up with exactly the same sort of uh, four futures and the same sort of you know sort of likelihood do you think anything would be different well mostly what would be different is that the things i would emphasize would be different i mean i think the basic framework holds up and i think you know i I've sort of played around with this a bit, taking my, my four quadrants and plugging in, you know, what uh, different headlines, different things going on in the world plug into the four quadrants fairly well. I think right now, obviously, because the pandemic is top of mind for everyone, everything is filtered through that. But I think that the same issues come into play uh, in terms of is this going to be a crisis in which the rich are able to find their disaster bunkers and get their you know, drone-delivered groceries and other people have Mm -hmm. to work in dangerous warehouses? Or is it one where we, you know, fund the public health response and the investment that's necessary to get through this in an egalitarian way? And that's being fought out right now. 
And how um, do you think that's playing out in the, in the States at the moment? Well, in the States, you know, we are in a particularly bad situation. This is a pretty, this is revealing that relative to other rich countries, whether it's Germany or South Korea or Australia, this is, the United States is a very dysfunctional and backwards country at this point. And so the lack of safety nets for workers, the lack of guaranteed health care, uh, the fragmentation of our political leadership between state and federal levels of government is all being exposed now. And so far, what we're getting is some attempt by our, our ruling elites and the mostly rich donor classes that support them to try and figure out a way to get back to some sort of status quo where the stock market stays up and everyone goes back to work and we go back to quote unquote normal. And I, I think that that's not real, that that reflects an unwillingness to really reckon with the reality of how much things have changed, how much we are already in a deep economic crisis that we will have to deal with even if we were to come up with a vaccine for the virus tomorrow. But I think the very magnitude of those changes and the very magnitude of the problems that they've exposed uh, has left a lot of our media and political elites unwilling or unable to face up to really the gravity of the problem. Peter, one thing we've noticed over here in Australia is that you know politics in the US in particular is becoming very tribal, um, and and you know groups are, are lining up behind uh, Donald Trump, um, and on the other side, the acceptance and the potential of someone like Bernie Sanders has surprised I think uh, political observers outside of America. Particularly with the young, you know, given what Bernie Sanders puts on the on the the political table, and I've even noticed that young Australians over here have actually liked the kinds of things that Bernie Sanders has been saying and promising. Do you think, even though he's not, hasn't been given the nod as the the Democrat candidate for the election, do you think that there is actually a growing appeal for left wing politics in the U.S.? like we haven't seen in a long, long time. I think that unquestionably there is. And as you said, there was a really marked generational divide in the way that the Bernie Sanders campaign played out. And I think that that's in part because Bernie's politics speak to the conditions of younger generations in this country. You know, for people my age and younger, I'm about to turn 40 years old, so I'm not that young anymore. But certainly everyone younger than me, you know, grew, growing up in situations of, you know, higher and higher debt loads and more and more difficulty paying rent or attempting to buy a house, you know, the precarity of employment and, of course, the constant anxiety about getting access to health care. All of that is stuff uh, that, you know, his message really speaks to. And I think the fact that he was able to get the traction that he did and that he has some appeal even, you know, to people around the world as a representative of this politics, I think is just indicative of the fact that he was speaking to anxieties and problems in this country that nobody else was in either party, uh, Democrat or Republican. And so even the end of the campaign, I think, is only the beginning of a radicalization that you're going to see, not just at the level of electoral politics, but also in the area of labor organizing. As we're seeing now, one of the things that's happening as we come to understand the centrality of essential workers like the people who staff Amazon warehouses while everyone's inside ordering everything off the internet, we're seeing increasing amounts of labor unrest and walkouts and spontaneous and also planned out organizing of those workers. And I think that is going to be also a wellspring of these more left-wing demands in the years to come. Well, one, one last question to you, Peter, and this is something that's, um, I guess, um, irritated me for a long, long time. And, and that is that uh, and I've got enormous respect for America as a country, but you often hear Americans, uh, leaders, business leaders, keep telling Americans that this is the greatest country in the world. And and even though it has so many aspects of it, which clearly makes it a significantly you know, great country, when it comes to social welfare, when it comes to the, the provision for even middle-class Americans – it doesn't compare to Australia or the UK where we can have right-wing governments, but there is just a little bit more social 
socialized policies. And America doesn't seem to, to get that. Like, we don't understand how someone could be on $8 a, a, an hour. There's like, and how restaurants, you have to tip people in restaurants for their wages. You know, like, in, in other countries of the world, the boss pays the wages and you choose to pay tips. How have Americans tolerated this difference with the rest of the world uh, for such a long time? Well, I do think it has to do with that ideology of American exceptionalism, which is just very strong in all of our, in our culture, in all of our media, even the way we're taught growing up in school. We are taught that this is the greatest country in the world and that it would be ridiculous to think otherwise. And, you know, our, our knowledge of other countries is spotty. I mean, one thing you have to recognize, Americans, especially older Americans, they leave the country even much less than uh, people in other places, Europeans certainly, and, and also Australians. Uh, you know, a huge proportion of Americans don't even have their passports. Uh, and some of that is cultural, again, some of it is that it's such a big country that you don't necessarily have to leave it uh, to do a lot of things. And, and of course, some of it is also that the very things that make this actually not such a great country mean that people don't have the vacation time and the resources and so on. And so I think there's a lack of, of understanding of just how sort of exceptional in a bad way the United States is. Though, again, I think with younger people, that's less true. And as people are more and more exposed through the media they consume, through the, the internet, you know, through their daily life to how things are done other places, people do start to ask, yeah, why do we tolerate paying a $2 an hour wage to employees that have to live off tips? Why do we tolerate a place where people can go bankrupt because they got a cancer diagnosis and their insurance wouldn't cover it? You know, why do we tolerate all of this stuff? And I think that this, this crisis, the pandemic and the associated economic crisis that it caused has just sort of raise that question in an even more pointed way and that this is going to be something that figures in our politics for years to come as we try to re rebuild and recover from the immediate effects of the pandemic. Well, Peter Fraze, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. He's the author of the book, Four Futures, Life After Capitalism. Thanks for coming on the program, mate. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Peter Fraze, the author of Four Futures, Life After Capitalism. And Paul... It was actually quite interesting, wasn't it? Both you and I thought that this could have well, been... When, when, I, when I did a little bit of research before the program, Peter, I, I, I can't say I read the book. I no, think the title no, of Four Futures Life After Capitalism yeah. doesn't do it for me. But yeah. I do actually think sort of his high-level points are interesting. And yeah, without doubt. We didn't actually get a bit chance to talk about automation, but I guess that's going to have a big issue once the virus is mm. over and people start to worry about how they're going to get a job. And mm. I guess a lot of companies are going to re-examine a lot of work practices practice as a result, yeah. and that might even drive more automation. Yeah, exactly right. And it just shows how well-balanced our program is that we're prepared to entertain someone from the left. Now, let's give up on the left. Let's go back to the right. It's time for an ad. Paul? Yeah, that's, of course, the uh, Switzer Report, which is our um, foundation publication, yeah. but also our, our uh, publication for all the active and, and less semi-active investors who want to do manage their own investments. And get uh, rich. And get rich. So it's not, um, uh, you know, we find that people really value the, the advice. We have some fantastic people writing in the Switzer Report, people like uh, Tony Featherston, James Dunn, Charlie Aitken. Uh, Rudy Philippic, Rudy Philippic, Julia Van Dyke, Lee. Julie Lee, yours... Mm. Peter Switzer, yeah, yours yeah, me truly. too. I'm pretty good. Yeah, you're pretty good. I like myself. Uh, and uh, you can, of course, you can subscribe. We publish uh, Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, uh, yeah. about 50 weeks of the year, roughly. Yeah. Uh, have webinars. We've got a webinar this Friday for all our clients um, with Julie you know, Lee. And, and no one's ever written and said we're crap. Not one person. No, we don't get much of that. No. Anyhow, all yours, <laughs> all yours for $397 per annum. Or tax deductible for some people. Tax deductible. You can take a free trial. Sign up. You get a 21-day free trial. Yep. And you go to Switzer Report, all one word, switzerreport.com.au. And this week, I actually featured 16 companies where the returns are over 40% if the analysts have guessed it right. Well, during the time uh, where we've all been challenged by the coronavirus, lots of businesses and other organisations have been looking at ways to, to help and make a contribution. And uh, 
We're speaking to Geraldine Kennett, who's the director of the MBA program and associate professor in business management at La Trobe Business School. And uh, the university is uh, basically offering free online uh, leadership development programs uh, developed by the MBA program. Geraldine, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, uh, Peter and Paul. Now, look... Just because we have a national audience, Geraldine, and just to bring you down from your your heady heights of academia, where I used to used to be when I taught at the University of New South Wales, I've got to ask you the question: Are you related to Jeff Kennett with a name like that? I have been asked that question several <laughs> times, and although we've lived at times in suburbs very close to each other, as far as I know, there is no relationship between both families. Okay, so that will either have an impact on people who wanted you to be or not wanted to be. So we cleared that one up from the outset. Now, is this the first, <laughs> is this the first time that you know, your division at La Trobe have, have actually offered uh, a free online course? As far as I know, yes. We've had the online MBA for a number of years. Uh, essentially, the last five years we've been... Uh, building on that and it's now highly ranked at number 30 globally and uh, and third in Australia. So we're really pleased with where that comes, but we haven't offered free online uh, programs as far as I'm aware in the past. Mm. Now, Geraldine, these are, are leadership uh, courses, so can you describe uh, you know, what, what you're covering and, and um, what, what a student's going to find when they uh, register? Yeah, well, they're actually a part of the MBA program. But -hmm. what happened is, in fact, um, Carlton Football Club approached us. They're a partner of the university and uh, they've worked with me on the MBA program for some time and said, have you got something that our managers can do in terms of short course during this period that they're being stood down? So that's where the inception started. And, of course, I said, yeah, well, why not? Let's have a look at some of the... Uh, the modules within the MBA, not even a subject, but just some core components that we thought might be good for them. And so it developed from there. Um, and uh, we've now gone, uh, as you're aware, we've now gone national and even global. There's more than 2,500 participants as I speak today. Mm. Um, but what's covered then to to enable them, the people that are in this kind of stood down or hibernation period is to have an opportunity to reflect on their own leadership style. So there's one component called leading self. So we provide a number of diagnostic tools and opportunities for people to have a have a look at their strengths and areas for improvement and develop a lead, their own leadership or career development plan. Then the second piece is around leading others. But delves a little bit more into some of the kind of things that you would do if you're undertaking an MBA program or a you know, Master of Leadership or Master of Management where you might look into some of the more theoretical uh, concepts uh, and practice of leadership. Uh, and that actually uh, really supports the, that hibernation period Mm. where what am I actually doing now? How can I survive? How can I support my teams that are working remotely? What can I do in terms of projects so that come post the um, COVID-19 uh, or our economic downturn, um, I can do differently? So there's this that piece around um, leading others. Uh, and then the, 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 uh, the final module is called uh, Leading for Results. And that's really focused on that reimagining or pivoting or what are the opportunities that I can look at for the future. Mm. And we do things more like human-centered design in there and creative problem solving. Now, all of those are in different subjects across the MBA. They're not all in the one subject. So we've just kind of pulled things that we thought were relevant for the time. Yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Uh, in, in this course of yours, do you ever focus on individual leaders that actually demonstrate the skills that you know that theory has shown works in that case? And if so, are, are there any leaders that you would refer to that people can, could get an idea of, you know, what kinds of leadership that this program kind of encourages? Yeah. That is it. So we give, we actually give um, the participants an opportunity to reflect on people that they uh, 
follow in terms of leaders or mentors or people that they believe have got leadership qualities that they aspire to. Mm. So there's that component. So then people in that particular stage are often talking about people in their own organisation uh, or people that they uh, globally that they may aspire to, mm. to following. But the thing about the um, the leadership programs that we run at the Trobe Business School is that because we subscribe to the UN Sustainable uh, Goals and we're a, um, a principle of responsible management education, we focus on values-based structures of leadership. Mm. Uh, and and uh, and a more corporate social responsibility leadership. So focusing on your business, but also focusing on uh, economic development. So your whole role in terms of the individual and the business in creating um, a sustainable economic environment. Mm. So uh, so given that kind of context, we look for people that um, that uh, aspire in those particular uh, areas. Now. Uh, eludes me at the moment of who we've actually got on the actual mm. program in terms of who we are specifically looking at in that uh, particular case. Mm. But if I click on a couple of links here, I might be able to uh, to pull up some of those. So I'm, I, I will apologise. I haven't um, I haven't quite got my handle on who we're specifically looking at in that particular case. But yeah. Generally, it's it's people that. Uh, uh, have a uh, embed what they do in corporate social responsibility. I know that, yeah. that um, the CEO of Pepsi, uh, Pepsi Cola, for example, she uh, has is very embedded in uh, giving back what they do um, to. Yeah, and I think uh, Elon Musk is a, is a, a leader who's got involved involved in sort of battery technology to fight fossil fuels. I, I think even Richard Branson has a big commitment to to you know, well, beating climate change and things like that. So yeah, there, there are yeah, pl plenty yeah. of leaders who are, who are certainly in that, that space that you're talking about. Paul? Yeah, what about uh, as we sort of think about in this particular environment where a lot of people are at home and you've got uh, you know, people are managing and leading teams from a remote workplace to their home? I mean, what sort of challenges does that throw up and, and do leaders need to change their styles and adapt? Uh, yeah, absolutely too. Uh, one of them is they need to build up their own resilience first because if you're, you're, you're not resilient uh, and have strength uh, yourself, then uh, it's often very difficult for you to be able to envisage what that might look like for your team. So we, we have a couple of modules where we, we help them build uh, their own uh, resilience and what those frameworks uh, might look like uh, in terms of that. Uh, but in terms of leading uh, remote people, it is about building the relationship and the connection. There are three sort of elements that we focus on. One is the ability to be able to um, envisage or you know have that kind of uh, passion for what you're actually doing and being able to guide people. And that's really important in a remote situation. So that's where you might spend some time yourself thinking about uh, an initiative or a project or something that's going to engage uh, people uh, in a passionate way and giving them meaning and purpose. Uh, and then the second element is to be able to enable them. And, and that's really difficult in a remote environment because people are only enabled by whatever tools that they've got around them or the, their own capability as well. So you may need to provide people with additional professional development like this or mm -hmm. other kind of um, programs to enable them to do that work. Um, and then there's that piece about empowering people and what does empowerment look like in a remote uh, circumstance? There has to be a lot of uh, a lot of trust, uh, but also people like to still work with the guidelines. So you go back to the other two and say, well, if I've got the guidelines and you've given me the tools to do it, then I feel I'm empowered and I can actually do it. I so I got and yeah, I'll you okay. No, no, there's just one more mm -hmm. piece that goes to that, and that's the engagement piece. And that's where the technology where you have an opportunity to engage with people you know, online has become really important because mm -hmm. the people don't want to feel isolated in that circumstance. So, mm -hmm. you know, all, all, all four of those um, elements are really vital for people yeah. working remotely. Well, I've got to say, I think you may well need an extra one called 
getting rid of the kids so you, you can become a leader when you're at home. <laughs> now, Geraldine, we are out of time, but there's two questions I want to ask just quickly. One is, is there any cap on the number of people who can actually go into the course? And how, how much time do you think people are going to need to, to cover the course? Okay, two things. There's no cap. We're running it like you would run a MOOC. Yep. Uh, they've got progression bars and all kinds of things that they can tick off so they can see their own progress through this as well as mechanisms for me to be able to, and my team that's all run by volunteers by the way I didn't mention that it's all run by MBA alumni and MBA staff who are volunteering their time there's around about 20 people behind the scenes so because there's about 20 people supporting the program we're able to make it uh, very engaging and hands-on for uh, we're now as I said 2,500 there's no limit, uh, and it will be open at least until the end of the year. Okay. Um, it takes around about 12 to 16 hours. It depends on what people want to do. You could just go in and do one module. You might just want to go in and do a couple of things around leading others. Or some people have gone in and wanting to do the things around you know, creative problem solving and uh, building resilience. Um, or you can do the whole program. So the whole program is about 16 hours. And uh, if you complete that and hand in your learning journal and bits of work and the communicating on the discussion forums, then there's opportunity to get um, credit for a postgraduate qualification with us. But indeed, I'm, I'm pretty sure that most organ- or universities uh, will accept um, applications for um, advanced standing or recognition for prior learning for the people that have undertaken the program. And, and Geraldine, finally, where do people go? Uh, to find out about it. Yeah, to, 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 apply, to apply to the course. <laughs> Great question, Paul. Yeah. It's a really good question, Paul. Um, if you go onto the La Trobe University website and you Google in there leaders learning in lockdown, it will take you straight to the registration page. Yeah, great, great way of calling it. Geraldine, thanks for joining us on the program. Welcome. Thank you so much, Peter and Paul. And that was Geraldine Kennett from La Trobe. Now, Paul, it's time for another. How about that book I wrote, Join the Rich Club? Yeah, I'm, oh, that one. That, that one, one the yeah. Join the Rich Club. You know, oh, what I, you said, when you paused there for a moment, I was thinking, what book? Yeah, Which that, book? Yeah. Ah, that one. The one you helped with the superannuation chapter. Yeah, it must have been the words I wrote. That puzzled me. <laughs> he helped me with one chapter and then proofread the rest and tried to interfere by changing too much and therefore he thinks he needs to be co-author. I don't think so. You got th- a thank you, didn't you, in the beginning of the book? Yeah, I found somewhere <laughs> in the forward about page 447. There's a little fine print sub the footnote down the bottom, footnote G- G2 or something. Was there a picture of you in the book anywhere? No, I didn't actually notice a picture. Gee, everyone, everyone, all our other staff members <laughs> got pictures. Gee, that's a bit, a bit rough. Maybe there might, the been, there might have been. There might have been. Was it something I about have, your ComSec history? Yeah, it could have been. Anyhow, look, there join, was, I think, we, we, we do digress history. and we're yeah. conscious of time. But yeah. anyhow, Join the Rich Club is a fabulous book. Uh, all yours by going for just $24.95 plus postage and handling, $24.95. And you go to... Switzer Store. All one word and a singular store. Mm. Switzer store. Switzer store. I got one store. I still think it should be switzerstore.com.au. Get on with it. Switzerstore.com.au. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. Well, the coronavirus is creating lots of threats and it also can create opportunities. And uh, we're talking to Peter Malone, who's the executive chairman of Skin Elements. And for his company, um, the coronavirus has actually created a product opportunity. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Peter. Much appreciated. So, Happy to join. Great. So, tell us what you, th- you know, what you've actually come up with as a consequence of the threat of the coronavirus. Well, basically, uh, Skin Elements is a company that's been around for over fifteen years, developing and looking at ways of uh, keeping natural ingredients safe from bacteria and uh, germs and bugs and whatever. Um, out of the fridge for two to three years at a time. So we've developed the a leading range of skincare products. Our, our pioneer product was the Saleo Organic Sunscreen Range. Uh, you can eat that product and not get ill. <laughs> um, it basically, uh, it's the number one sunscreen by the Environmental Working Group's testing process in the US, which they rate the sunscreens from A to Z, and uh, uh, ours is number one out of 728 products on the market there. Okay, so um, yeah, now you've gone into sanitise, and that's one of the main reasons why we want to talk to you as well. But I, I, can I just pick you on one little point? Because 
my wife has always been very suspicious of um, um, skin sun protection cream because she said, well, it actually those chemicals get into the body of the person who is put, slapping it on their, their children and themselves all the time. Was that part of the reason why you wanted to come up with something that you effectively eat? Absolutely, and that she's 100% right. The Just I'll, I'll get onto the sanitizers as you said in a minute, but uh, just touching on the sunscreen a bit further, um, a natural-based sunscreen formula using natural zinc, uh, which harks back to the 50s, uh, milling the zinc to micron size instead of nano size. And nanoparticled sunscreens became a thing of the last decade. And with their synthetic chemical formulas, they they be basically once applied to the skin of the person or child, they're in their blood in 20 minutes, the chemicals. Those chemicals are highly toxic internally in the body. They're okay for blocking the sun on the surface of the skin. But the move to nanoparticles... With those formulations, uh, was the impetus that drove us to develop a natural organic product uh, that didn't have the consequences of using the old existing synthetic formulas that came out of the oil industry, the plastics of the 60s and 70s, the Tupperwares, the liquid glad wraps, as we call the sunscreen. Um, all those formulations were great uh, for a period until I went to nanoparticle size. And when they dropped them into a millionth of a millimetre, they're in the pores through into your blood in seconds. Uh, minutes later, you can be t- detecting the products out of the urine of the person. Uh, that's when it becomes a problem. And yep. that's when okay. basically... So, so you've got a product that uh, that obviously um, has the part... Yeah, Essentially, it's good enough that, you don't, you, as you said, you can eat it. I'm not sure why you'd want to, but let's assume it solves the problem Peter's referring yeah. to. Let's move on, Peter, if we can, though, however, to uh, the coronavirus and what you're doing with uh, hand sanitizers, in particular uh, the product you're developing that is essentially non-alcohol-based or, or an alternative to that. Yes, and that's right. And this is the same type of... Uh a shift in the market again we had with the sunscreens is now the sanitizers. The the big shift is going from the alcohol based sanitizer as we've seen in the last couple of years sort of come to the fore and split into a totally different base which is a completely natural organic base. And and this product now uh, meets all the requirements of any sanitizer in the Australian market. Um, it certainly doesn't come with the issues of alcohol. Alcohol's been around, of course, over 100 years. It's a very good steriliser. You get a cut in your arm or somewhere, you get sterilised the wound with alcohol, stitch it up and put a patient on their way. Um, but you don't do that 10 to 20 times a day, pour the alcohol back onto the wound. Mm. And that process sucks all the moisture out of the skin. It dries dramatically, it starts to gather problems and be used before you know it, you've got dermatitis that's set in and there are a whole new range of problems mm. become yep. critical. So this was the shift to go away from alcohol and use natural safe ingredients on the skin yet at the same time have the ability to kill the bacteria and the viruses and the issues that we're faced with. Okay, so you're a listed company, uh, Peter, uh, and so I, I guess what my listeners would love to know, what is the investment opportunities for you guys and what are the rivals out there? Are there many rivals in the market, you know, either here or abroad, that are doing exactly the same as you? Look, uh, firstly, we are a public company. Uh, we have been doing research for the last three years. Uh, we're now embarking on a sales uh, marketing program with our products, and this is the shift since the new year, and Skin Elements is becoming a business that's now embarking on a program to develop sales based off its uh, award-winning sun- uh, sunscreen, papaya-based products, and now the sanitizer. The The issue with the sanitizer, it's, it's like the Tesla. We're like the Tesla to uh, sanitizers. Uh, we, we come in a totally different base and we give the performance plus that the customer or the, the person is using. Um, globally, there have been and there are a, a small group of companies that are developing products in this space. Um, 
we're the first one with a natural, uh, totally natural organic base. Uh, there are others with the chlorine and ammonia base and some of these other, which are certainly different to the alcohols, but this is the new path for sanitizers. Mm. Sanitizers are not sterilizers, they're sanitizers. And you've teamed up with another company. So Skin Elements uh, is listed, as Peter said, under ASX code SKN. You've teamed up with a, another company called Holista Coltec Limited, which is also a listed company under HCT. What are the respective roles in that partnership? Look, the, uh, essentially we have developed our base for keeping uh, bacteria products comfortable with bacteria and, and being able to kill bacteria and the likes. Um, we saw the the product that the Helista group have licensed uh, from an American group, which is a a natural base to assist in the killing of germs and bacteria and viruses, has been a benefit for the formulation. So we sought the group out and we got the license. Um, Helista had the license to uh, to use it in sanitizers and so does skin elements. Mm. Okay, mate. So uh, finally, what's the market reaction so far? Oh, look, I think the market uh, sees the future with these type of products. The market has, uh, the company's enjoyed uh, a fair bit of interest in the in the period since we announced it two weeks ago. Uh, the development path, of course, is a 15-year program in real terms uh, in developing this product and also the the ingredients from the American supplier is 15 years as well, so it's nothing just done overnight. But the bottom line is, I think uh, going forward, there's going to be uh, we're releasing our products this week into the Australian marketplace: the Invisi Shield natural uh, sanitizer, hand sanitizer. Uh, it'll be then exported globally over the course of the next couple of months and get into the European summer as well. Mm. So very, very big opportunity for us going forward. Well, good luck with it, Peter. It sounds like a very innovative product and a product of its time. Thanks for joining us. Great stuff. Thanks, Peter. And that was Peter Malone from Skin Elements, and now we catch up with a friend of mine who's locked up in London, Louise Kay. Great to talk to you, Louise. Hello. So, Louise, you know, apart from you know catching up with you, you know, as a as a great human being, I really wanted to talk to you about what's it like living in London with the coronavirus, you know, obviously changing the way one of the greatest cities in the world has to operate. Well, it's London is eerily quiet and empty. I've done quite a bit of cycling around the city, and it's just weird how empty it is. Um, but my neighbourhood, where I've lived for 26 years, is quite, quite a friendly community. And when I go out uh, to walk my dog or to do a bit of food shopping, I see lots of people I know. So I'm able to wave at them from a social distance and have little conversations with people, which is really good. Mm. So, so, so but, um, how... From what we've been reading around, you know, in, in international press, um, the UK seems to be having a hard time getting on top of the coronavirus. Is that the view inside uh, London, where, where you are? Yes, I think so. I think that uh, the government took quite a long time to um, shut things down. And uh, I think they started off talking about trying to create herd immunity. And that's slowed their, their shutdown quite considerably. So I think that may have been the reason why it took off so much. But um, there's also a, a big problem in that a lot of people lost their jobs, and especially people who don't have proper contracts. And I was reading today in The Guardian that there are many, many people living on the streets who were casual workers in restaurants and hotels so on, who lost their jobs and have no protection at all. And it's quite dire for a lot of people. Louise, I've got my, uh, my daughter lives in London, and in some ways the restrictions are ha- seem to be a little bit tighter than they are in Australia, but in other ways they're not. And one of the ones I've been surprised about is that you still anyone can come into the UK, there's still no quarantine to enter. They're only just mm. talking about that. Is that... It's perhaps seen in hindsight as being a big mistake? 
Well, I don't know, but all I can tell you is looking up at the sky, there are barely any planes at all. So I don't think there are that many people coming in. I think maybe it's people being repatriated, but I certainly don't think there are tourists or other people traveling. And why has it... uh... Why has it been so hard? A lot of the, I, I watch a fair bit of Sky News, and everyone always seems to be talking about PPE. Why has it been yes. such a big issue in the UK about getting adequate supplies? I have to say I find that completely mysterious myself because there are plenty of manufacturers who could easily um, convert to making PPE, and it's taken the government a very long time to get their heads around that. I think it's starting to happen now. I think part of it is to do with Brexit as well, mm-hmm. that uh, had, had they been part, you know, part of the team as they had been before, the European team, they would probably be in a better position. Um, I, I don't understand it. Mm. So the rest of Europe really hasn't been trying to do the UK too many favours. Is that sort of uh, where that's heading? Or? Well, apparently... Apparently, they did offer to, um, early on, there was an offer from the rest of Europe to get together to order enough stuff for all of the countries. And Britain, for some reason, didn't respond to that. So it got left out. What's the um, um, projection for when the lockdown and closure laws will be eased in the UK? Well, there isn't. And the government is refusing to say. All they're saying is, not yet, not yet. And we're following the science, is the catchphrase. So they have a team of people who meet regularly, but they're not actually sharing what's coming out of those meetings with the general public. So you have members of your family that own a lighting shop and an antique repair shop. What has been the impact on their particular businesses? Uh, well, my younger daughter, Madeline, she's 35, married with two children who are 10 and 8. And she and her husband have been running a lighting business for five years and took over a lighting restoration business about just over a year ago. Mm. And that includes a shop. And they currently have two sites, the shop and the workshop space on a small industrial estate. And when COVID-19 hit, uh, Maddie was listening to the daily government briefings and checking their websites for advice and about what businesses should be doing. And on the evening of Monday, the 23rd of March, it was announced that all non-essential shops needed to close. So my daughter and son-in-law followed the instructions, closed their business immediately. They updated their website. They went into the shop to turn everything off and put a sign up in the window. They had to furlough their staff and let freelancers go. And they had to contact all their customers and draw up an emergency budget to see how long they could survive without any income. And they also, sadly, had to cancel a major shop renovation, which was meant to start two days later. Uh, So having spent five years slowly but surely growing their business, the shop renovation was going to be a major investment and take their business to the next level. Mm. And it's likely that they're going to use most or all of their cash reserves to survive the closure. And they're very unlikely to be in a secure enough position to undertake the refurbishment once they're allowed to reopen, which means they need to completely rethink their business plan and strategy Mm. for growth over the next couple of years. And while they wait and see what the demand for their services will be once they're allowed to reopen, um, so they've been keeping up to date with government advice for businesses and they've been grateful for the 100% business rate relief on the shop mm-hmm. and also £10,000 government grant. And they've signed up for the government's coronavirus job retention scheme, which reimburses them 80% of their staff salary costs while they're furloughed, which is a massive help, but mm. it does mean that you know, the, the staff can't, they're not allowed to do anything during that time. And uh, also their landlord has given them a rent holiday, allowing them to repay their March and June quarters evenly over 2021. So they got time to build up again, which is good. Mm. Um, And she said, although it's difficult and unsettling for them and their business, they're hopeful that their small cash reserves and government and landlord support that they've received will allow them to survive the closure, even if it means scaling back and regrowing it from basics. Um, she also mentioned that uh, the government has offered business loans at cheap rates, 
But the loans have to be secured personally by the borrower, which probably won't be tempting for a lot of people. No, exactly right. Um, I was just going to say what this period has done for all of us is just make us aware of how fortunate we are compared to millions of people who are struggling far more than us. Yeah. You know? So and both my daughters have, have mentioned that, yeah. Well, that's that's a, a positive, I guess, we're all starting to appreciate uh, what others can help and bring to us and how much we need uh, community and family around us. But look, what I'd like to move on to, if I could, is just to Boris, who uh, who came back to work yesterday. Um, I mean, clearly that was one of the things, that I guess, when he uh, went into hospital, really, really shocked, not just the UK, but certainly many, many people right across the globe. Now, he's back at work as... Is uh, is a bit of resentment about how Boris has uh, handled the, the crisis so far? Yes, I think so, very much. And in fact, my my other daughter, I mean, we personally are not great Boris supporters, any of us in the family, but uh, she, we all found the period that he was in hospital very unsettling. Um, and, the, and I think we just feel that the government really isn't quite on top of what's going on here. So... Yeah, we may be wrong, but that's the general feeling, I think. Mm. Yeah, the, the, not, flip, the flip side, Louise, the flip side here is our, our Prime Minister went into this pretty unpopular after not handling the bushfires all that well. But because he's handled mm. this, the coronavirus brilliantly, his, his ratings have never been so high. Pe- people have basically seen him as like a wartime leader and... I think a country can get very, very annoyed if uh, a leader doesn't step up when the challenges are as serious as they are with the coronavirus. Now, one last absolutely one last thing. You've got a business called well, you've, you created something called Cafe Conversations. Just tell us what yeah. what that is and why is it relevant during a time when we're all being imposed upon by the coronavirus. Uh, well, I've had to close it down, unfortunately, which is, and in fact, I did that early on, even before everything was closed um, officially, because I felt that the people, a lot of the people who came were quite vulnerable and they were nervous about coming out. And it did mean everybody sitting in close proximity. Mm. So um, I, I'm going to have to relaunch it once everything comes back to normal, which is a bit of a shame, but... Uh, and what, maybe, what, what was the principle of it, uh, Louise? Well, the BBC did a very big survey about about a year and a half ago, and the 55,000 people responded to that. And uh, it was quite shocking, I think, for them to discover how many people do feel lonely some of the time. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to feel lonely all the time, but most people feel lonely at some point in their lives. And it can be for so many different reasons. It could be somebody who is not from around here, who's moved to to England and feeling uh, far from family and friends. It can be someone who works from home who doesn't see people. It can be a carer who's um, stuck with somebody unwell a lot of the time. Um, It can be someone who's divorced or widowed. There's so many reasons why people can go through loneliness. And there are even people who are living with other people who feel lonely. Um, Certainly, I think even during this coronavirus shutdown, there are people who may not be living on their own, but they can feel very alone. Mm. Um, So I thought, well, what can I do about this in my local neighborhood? And it occurred to me that the best thing to do is to get people together. And so I went to a local cafe and I asked whether there was a time of the week when it was very quiet, when they could sort of allocate a, a table or two to us. And said Monday afternoons were good. So I just started promoting it. I made a flyer, which didn't actually use the word loneliness. I think it said something like, are oh, you fed up with looking at your own four walls? You know, and then listed some of the reasons why people might be on their own and want to get out and meet people. Uh, just come along. You know, certain time, certain place, and meet other people. And I created a list of um, questions. Some of them are icebreaker questions, some are philosophy, so that we give people subjects to talk about rather than just coming and talking about themselves. And it took off. Yeah. Yeah, And the irony is 
People probably want that right now, but of course, with social distancing restrictions, you can't do it. Louise, thanks for joining us on the program, and we really do hope the uh, the UK and particularly London gets back to normal as soon as possible, so we can come over there and visit you. That would be great. Okay, then. Thanks a lot. Well, Paul, I feel as though we have digressed so much, and we've put a lot of crap in there in between. Some people would have probably thought these guys are crapping on. You know that we took a jump to the left. And next week, maybe it's time to take a skip yeah. to the right. <laughs> Did I get that? Yeah, skip to the right. Okay. Yeah, all right. But past you the win. Rocky you I win. win. I win. Yay! The Rocky Horror Rickard. That's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>